When you think of a Texan, you probably picture a cowboy, maybe even a kid riding to school on a horse. And while that's sometimes the case, it doesn't quite fit for everyone. Texans come in all shapes, sizes, ethnicities, and backgrounds. And that's why the Austin American Statesman is proud to present Truly Texan, a podcast showcasing all the different people that make the Lone Star State so unique. Today, we're speaking with Kim Butler, a Plano mother and former teacher who had a terrifying experience with a rare autoimmune disease. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Now, I have to let our listeners know that this is not our first time meeting, far from it, actually. Um, (laughs) You were basically my second mom when I was younger. I was childhood best friends with your daughter. I know you as Miss Kim, but will you introduce yourself to everyone of who you are, where you live, and what you do? Yes, absolutely. My name is Kim Butler, and I am currently living in Plano, Texas. Grew up in Houston, went to Texas A&M, was a teacher, and I currently still do a lot of teaching, long-term substitute jobs and substitute jobs. So that's what's going on right now. Now, like I said, we know each other, and I heard through the grapevine, a.k.a. my mom, that you've been (laughs) looking for a way to tell your story and that you were wanting me to be the one to tell it, which I'm very honored about. And it's also just great for me to talk to you again because it's been so long. But let's just dive right on into it. So when did you first start realizing that there was maybe some health issues going on for you? Okay, so I had my son, Rick, in July of 1996. And I went back to work. I was doing a lot of uh, teaching, consulting type stuff, and absolutely run down, worn out, tired, fatigued. So then I went back to work for a little bit in Carrollton Farmers Branch, where I had been teaching. And it was a part-time job where I met a lot of wonderful people who led me to your mom and you, of course. And um, in January, I just started feeling sick. And I was like, wonder what is going on? I had a respiratory infection. Well, that day, I remember um, my husband and I took Rick, who's now six months old, to dinner. And I was unable to drink. I took a sip of my water and it just literally poured out of my mouth. And I told my husband, something's going on here. I'm unable to swallow. And within a day or two, I was unable to speak or swallow. So we knew something was really off. I went to the emergency room and the emergency room doctors were just basically like, you have an infection and here's your medication and go home. So that's how this whole thing started. It escalated very quickly. I was unable to speak. I was unable to swallow. I had to have um, towels around my mouth because the saliva was not going down my throat. And eventually got to an ear, nose, and throat doctor. Took a couple of days. um, And he immediately called the hospital in Carrollton and basically was like, I'm sending this person over. She is very, very ill. I have no earthly idea what's going on but she needs to go straight to um, ICU. Got straight to ICU. Um, I think that was the first time I was on a ventilator. And because um, with this disease, I'll go ahead and say what it was, but we didn't know for a long time. The disease was called, or is called myasthenia gravis. And 
basically it's a neurological disease where you're unable to speak, swallow, have droopy eyes, and it escalates very quickly. I was 30 years old. It affects women in their childbearing years. So it affects women about around 30, and it affects men in their 60s. So it, um, it affected me at 30 years old. So I never heard of it, you know, so crazy and very scary. It was very, very scary because I had absolutely no idea what was going on with me. Got to the hospital, got on a respirator because I was coughing my secretions. We were worried about me choking. And that was my first experience in the hospital. And at that point, no one knew what was going on. So the doctors there at this first hospital were absolutely clueless. They thought um, maybe it was something I ate. Maybe it was something I um, had. I don't know if they, they really thought it was like some kind of infection was going on with me. So we just need to give her more medication. At one point, they had a um, infectious disease team go to my house and look through all the food that I had eaten. Like they came in in their hazmat suits and everything. And they're trying to figure out like what is going on with this girl. Eventually, I got a little bit better and they released me and with an diagnosis and went back home and continued to get worse. It was just absolutely terrifying. They didn't know if I had a stroke. They didn't know if I had cancer. They did not know um, what was going on and they had not seen this very uh, before. It's a very, very rare disease. So it really wouldn't make sense for this person who's pretty healthy. You know, I had had a baby, so, you know, I'm sure my body was going through some things, but they just had really never seen it. So at that point I go home and I get worse and worse. So I go to see more doctors. They don't know what's going on. Fast forward about a month, I'm losing weight. I still can't swallow. And I have to get an ambulance at that point. And the ambulance took me to Baylor Hospital, Big Baylor Hospital in Dallas. So got to Big Baylor and met my savior, Dr. Alan Martin, at Baylor Hospital. And he said to my family, who had all gathered, I think I know what's going on. I don't know for sure, but I'm going to do this very, um, very specific test. And I'm going to see what I think she might have. So he did what's called the Tensilon test there in the emergency room or in the ICU. And they did this test and it came back slightly for myasthenia gravis. But at that point he said, this is it for sure. She responded to the test and we now have a diagnosis and now we can start the treatment process. Thank goodness. I want to say that was about my maybe third time in a, three different hospitals that I've been on an, a ventilator which was horrible, horrible, horrible. Um, I even have like so many notes that I looked through preparing for this because I couldn't speak to my family. I had a brand new baby and I have notes that are just asking how my baby's doing. Am I going to die? Am I going to live? You know, all the, all these notes that just kind of brought me back when I was looking through them today, because I truly did not know if I was going to survive this. Dr. Martin finally was the person that gave us hope. He said, I know what this is. I'm going to treat it. 
and she has a disease called myasthenia gravis. It's a neurological condition. Her body has basically been attacking her nerves. So in my case, it attacked my speaking, my swallowing, my eyes. That's another symptom of myasthenia gravis. Your eyes get really droopy. And you'll find this interesting, Hannah, since you're such a Disney person. Um, when Walt Disney um, was making the movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he actually um, based his character Sleepy on one of his friends who had myasthenia gravis. Because if you notice, Sleepy's eyes are just so you know, droopy. So he based that on a character who had the same disease as I have. So anyways, um, stayed there at Baylor Hospital for a long time. And finally, I started to get better through a series of um, treatments called plasmapheresis. So I would have to every day wake up and I would go down to a, a, their treatment center at Baylor where they have a plasmapheresis room. And at that point, you take they're taking your blood, your, your, the plasma out of your blood, and they're putting in different plasma, human plasma, from um, that they make or whatever, and they're putting it into your body. So that plasmapheresis treatment is one of the main treatments in myasthenia gravis, as well as um, a drug called mestinon and high, high-dose steroids. So with all of that, little by little, I started to get better. I started to be able to speak. I started to be able to swallow. I started to not have to be um, uh, on ventilators. And I felt like I'm going to live. Whatever this is, I found my doctor. He knows what it is. I'm being treated. And um, I, I saw some hope for the first time. I remember when I was in Baylor, someone came up to me and they said, Oh, we know, we know what you have. We know someone who, who has it. And I was like, oh, wow. Um, and they said, she had it like 20 years ago. Is it okay if she calls you to talk to you about it? I said, I would love that. And they said, she's living this totally normal life. And I think she's going to want to be an inspiration to you. So I remember getting on the phone with this woman who's, who was in her 50s. And I'm 57 now. And um, said to this young girl, 30 years old, 30-year-old me, and said, you will survive this. You will have a normal life. And that gave me more hope. And when I think about my journey with this disease, that's one of the things I remember talking to that lady and um, having so much hope. And that's why I'm just so grateful to you for letting me tell this story, because if I could help anybody who's going through this and say, hey, you know what? That was a terrible time. It was the scariest time of my whole life. However, some really good things did come out of it. Um, and I could be an inspiration to someone like they were to me at that same time period. Did you ever get to speak to that woman again or to tell her that? I never, I never did, but um, she just has no idea what a blessing she was in my life when I was at my darkest, darkest period. To know that, hey, you know what? She made it. She's living this wonderful, normal life. She went on to have children. And I pray that I can too, which, as you know, I did. 
So I also want to say this. When I was 20, oh, and I'm sorry, when I was 30 years old, there was no internet to Google myasthenia gravis like there is now. Like today, I could put it in. I could see all the treatments. I could see people's stories. I could I could read about it. I could just put my symptoms in, and it might have come up. I don't know. Back then, it was not like that. So I even had in this in this packet that I found today, I even had people send me like packets of information that they had printed out that they found or their doctor had found or something like that. So such a great thing right now that we, we do have the internet that gives us so many more tools and so much more treatment and so many success stories. You mentioned that this disease affects women in their childbearing years. Did the doctors think that maybe your pregnancy triggered the disease? I'm not sure that the pregnancy itself triggered the disease. However, at that time in my life, from July to January, when the onset came, I was at my lowest as far as my, um, not mental condition, but as far as my body being healthy. So I was not sleeping. I was having a very hard time with nursing. And so my baby was nursing all night long. Therefore, I wasn't sleeping. And I did go back to work three days a week. And I think I hit rock bottom as far as just my body being completely worn out. I got a respiratory infection in January. And then the onset came the next week. So I just think that a lot of it had to do with stress and fatigue. And I imagine that once you really started to get sick, started to drop weight, it became even harder yes. to nurse a child, provide for a child. Absolutely. Absolutely. That all had to um, that all had to sadly say goodbye because when I went into the hospital, um, I was in and out of the hospital for six straight months, you know, different hospitals. And I was so blessed to have my mother and my mother-in-law and my sister um, come from Houston to take care of Rick so that my husband could be in the hospital with me all those months. And his work was super supportive, which we were so very grateful for. And um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a very trying period. And if you look in Rick's baby book, it's like, I couldn't even write, you know, what happened to him from six months to 12 months because I honestly wasn't there a lot of it. You know, do you feel like you were robbed of that experience? A little bit, but um, I mean, I knew he was in great hands, but I also, uh, you know, it, it was sad. It was sad not to be um, seeing so many milestones, you know, that he had during those six months that I just wasn't present for. And I definitely had depression. So I couldn't speak. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't play games with my baby. And it was a dark time mentally as well as physically. And um, I got on a antidepressant um, for what they were calling situational depression. And that was also life-changing for me to get on that medicine because, um, I mean, I never, I never had, you know, dark thoughts or anything, but I was definitely like 
just so sad, you know, just so sad. Like, why is this happening to me? Um, and um, just wanting to be present in my child's life, my new baby, and wasn't able to. So that also really helped, along with just so much support from family and my friends. Yeah. That all sounds really difficult. And on top of the depression, on top of not being able to be there with your new baby, you had to have this horrible confrontation with your own mortality. You didn't know if you were going to survive. What was that like for you? Right. So that was super scary. Um, But like I said, once I figured out what was going on about three, four months into the um, diagnosis, I got to Baylor. I found Dr. Martin. He treated me and I started, you know, really seeing the hope. I did not want to die at 30 years old with a newborn baby or child, but I, I did not have any regrets. I mean, I'm just so blessed in my life. I have been my whole life. I had amazing parents. I had amazing family, friends, husband, um, support team, as you know, still today. I mean, I just, uh, with your mom, I've just, I've been just so blessed. And so no, I didn't have regrets. My regrets were going to be if I could not live, you know, to see my son grow up, to see my family and things like that. And to have to look at my parents and see the fear in their eyes when they were watching me in the ICU. I just hated the fact that I was having to put them through this, you know. And yes, I was thinking, what was I what could I have done to maybe take better care of myself? Um, to not have this disease being brought on me, but, uh, you know, with the lack of sleep and the, just the stress, and the fatigue, and maybe I should have gone back to work. And, you know, so there was those guilt feelings for sure. Like I did, this, I brought this on myself, you know, but, but no, no dark feelings about like what I've been through in my life or any regrets about like that kind of stuff. No. Now I had another setback because a lot of times when you have myasthenia gravis, you might have a cancerous growth on your thymus gland. As children, or as, you know, children and babies need their thymus gland. We don't need it as adults. So a lot of times when you have myasthenia gravis, you have an enlarged thymus gland that they think might have a cancerous growth on it. They thought that was my situation. And so they said, you know what, the best news is if you have it, we're going to remove your thymus either way. Um, if it's cancer, if it, I'm sorry, if it is a cancerous growth, it does not spread. So if you have, it's called thymoma, then um, we're going to remove your thymus gland and it will not have spread like this cancer. If, if you don't have cancer, we're still removing your thymus gland. And they said a lot of times when we remove this gland, a lot of people see improvement. So I said, okay. So we went back into the hospital. I had um, a thymectomy where you can see my scar because it's uh, basically they follow the same path as if you're doing open heart surgery. They went in, they took out my thymus gland. I did not have cancer. And um, that was that was a blessing and stitched me back up. And uh, boy, does that tell a story right there with that scar that I still see and have today. Um, but I will say it turned out to be a true blessing because once they took out my thymoma, I 
started seeing so much improvement immediately. I mean, immediately between the plasmapheresis and the mestinon and the steroids and the surgery, I had a remarkable recovery. And to this day, my doctor, I don't have to see him very often, but if I do see him or talk to him about anything, he will tell me that I truly was one of it or, or still am one of his very best patients that he's ever had in his practice as a neurologist with myasthenia gravis. So yes, I had a rough road, but I also had a remarkable um, recovery that I just thank God for every day. And my life changed after that surgery. Um, in July, I was able to go to the beach with my one-year-old and we were playing on the beach and I still had all kinds of, you know, like, oh, I had a port and I had some other things, but um, I was doing just fantastic. So that was great. I just feel like I've just been like the Lord has just given me so many amazing blessings. And uh, if I had had to end my life at 30, I, I, I just would have been so grateful for that time. And here I am now 57 and having gone through a terrible um, disease and, you know, just other things. Um, my mother died of cancer, you know, some other things. Um, I just don't take, you know, this life we live for granted and, um, just, you know, live each, try to live each day to the fullest and try to, um, you know, make people happy and, and, um, spark joy and, you know, all those cliches. I mean, I feel like that's how I live. And I feel like a lot of it is because I had to go through something very young and, um, and it really, golly, taught me so many lessons in my life. And I've heard people who have cancer and breast cancer and they survive it, you know, and they say, you know what, I would not be the person I am today had I not gone through that journey. It just taught me so much about life. And I feel that way about this particular journey as well. I don't think about it that often, but anymore, um, as it's just coming back, but I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to like sit and go through my notes and read my journals and, you know, really have a time to, to think about this and just another opportunity to be so, so grateful, you know? You mentioned being so grateful to God for all of the blessings in your life. Did you find yourself yes. leaning on your faith during that difficult time? Oh, my goodness. I just remember having, like, Bible verses, you know, pinned up by my bed. I mean, especially the days that I didn't, I couldn't get out of bed, literally, because I was so sad. And um, I would, I would like, look and say, lean not on your own understanding. And, and uh, people would send me stuff and Bible verses and um, yeah, a thousand percent. I'm going to tell you another little miracle, and that is my daughter, Brooke. And um, when I decided, um, you know, I would really, really love to have another child, I wanted to give Brooke a sibling, and um, I had to go to my neurologist and talk about it and say, you know what, I'm off my medications. Um, this has been a couple years now. I feel like I'm doing great, and I'm in remission. And what, what about having another baby? And he said, you know, there are three options here. He's like, you're either going to keep getting better. And I was like, well, I, don't, I can't get much better than I already am. He said, you can um, stay the same or you can get worse with this pregnancy. He said, I cannot tell you. So he, so I'm just going to give you like 
a third of a chance to know that this may come back. You're, you're maybe out of remission if you decide to get pregnant. So I discussed it with my husband and I, we decided that, that we wanted another child and we were going to just pray that, um, the pregnancy would go well and the myasthenia gravis would not come back and I would stay in remission. And I'm super happy to say that's exactly what happened. And as you know, I had a beautiful, healthy baby girl and, um, she and Rick are four years apart. And so I also consider that one of my biggest blessings in life that, you know, I was able to have two children. Do you have any lasting effects? I know you said that you don't have to see your doctor a whole lot anymore, but are there just yes. kind of check-ins you have to do every once in a while or anything that comes up? No, so, that's a good question. About, oh, maybe like 10 years after I had the um, myosin and gravis and was, went through the journey and about all that kind of stuff, I was probably about 40. And I started having chronic migraines and I went to Dr. Martin and I was like, I, I can't even think straight. You know, my head just is hurting me all the time. And Dr. Martin set me up with um, some, basically some injections and infusion infusions, I should say. So I went to Baylor and um, went and started having whatever they were giving me in pretty high doses to, for the head pain. And it was working, but at some point it didn't work anymore. So I'm sure you're familiar, we're all familiar with Botox. And Botox is actually a, um, a, a treatment for migraines. And so they were going to inject in my head all these needles of Botox and talk to Dr. Martin. He was like, you know what? You can't have Botox. He said, um, Botox, and even on the back of the package, says, if you have myasthenia gravis, you cannot have Botox. So right before we were going in to do this massive migraine treatment, they um, they stopped it and said, no, we're not, we're not even going to go down that road. That could bring on um, her myasthenia gravis again. And um, so we didn't do that. We continued with the infusions, and thankfully the chronic migraines went away. But now I'm trying to think. I don't think I've seen or had to go see Dr. Martin since that time. And, um, but I know he's still out there and I have had to refer some other, my friends who have to see neurologists for whatever reasons I've, I've, I've sent them to him. Yeah. I said, tell him I said hello, tell him his best patient still doing great. So you said that, you know, it's important to you to share your story for someone who may be going through this, just like how that woman shared her story to help you get through it. Absolutely. So what would you say to someone who is struggling with the condition that you struggled with? If you are struggling with this condition, um, I just pray and I hope that you can reach out and find somebody who also maybe knew somebody, you know, because that's how the world works, right? You get a disease or you're going through something, even with pregnancies or whatever we're doing. And you say, oh, my friend had that. Or my friend can talk to you because her aunt or uncle or whatever was going through that. And um, to be a blessing, you know, to someone else, to be able to share your story, to me, that's just one of the most beautiful things in life, you know? I have some friends who are going through some bad things. 
and bad medical conditions. And if they hear other stories like I did, then you are just filled with so much more hope about whatever you're going through in this world. When my mother died, my sister spoke to her um, service, her celebration of life, and told my story about how my mother was there for me. And, you know, her child, she's worried about, you know, you're always our babies. And um, talked about, you know, when I went through my gravis and how my parents were there for me. And after the service, I had two men in their 60s and 70s come up to me and tell me that they also had myasthenia gravis. And I said, yes, because it affects men in their 60s and 70s and women in the 30s. And I hope that maybe doing this podcast, you know, somebody can reach out to me and I can tell them my story and I can tell them just like that lady did with me that you have hope and you're going to be okay and you're not going to die and you're going to live a great life, you know, and there are treatments out there that I'm sure are much better than they were 25 years ago when I personally was going through all this. And I just want to give other people hope, um, not just in this situation, but if you're going through anything, right, reach out to someone and have them pray for you and have them tell, tell their story and help, you know, just basically help each other. Now, the last question that I have for you is one that I ask everyone who comes on to the podcast as kind okay. of a tie-in to the name of Truly Texan. And that question yes. is, okay. what does being a Texan mean to you? Oh, my goodness. I am the most proud native Texan. Um, I was born in Houston, went to college station for a few years, back to Houston to teach. And now I've been in this Dallas area for 31 years. And um, I cannot imagine living anywhere else. It's my, one of my most pride and joyful things to say that I am a Texan wherever I travel. I love to travel. I have a ranch in the Hill Country that's been in my family for 80 years. So the history through my family and my ancestors coming up through, you know, coming over from Germany and coming up on the boat and coming up through Galveston and getting up to the hill country and settling there and um, I'm such a proud Texan as you know I'm very proud Texas Aggie where a lot of my family members also went and have a dorm named after them there um, I just absolutely cannot imagine living anywhere else back when you girls were little my husband was going to be transferred to North Carolina and I was like I'm not going El ha ha I would have gone but um uh, thankfully, um, we didn't have to because I just never wanted to leave the state. I taught fourth grade. I love Texas history. I can tell you all about all the battles and the revolution. I've gone to a lot, so many like the museums um, around the state. I love going to the Alamo. Um, yeah, uh, being a Texan to me is just um, incredible. And I just am so thankful that I was born in this state. And that is that's so true. So thank you for asking me that question because that's just put a, a big smile on my face. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. And if someone does want to reach out to you, maybe someone who's struggling with the same condition, is there somewhere they can reach you, somewhere they can contact you? Absolutely. They can. Um, oh, my goodness. Well, they could get in touch with you for first of all, and then you, you can put them in touch with me. So I think that might be the easiest answer. I also want to apologize for my raspy voice. 
I am now teaching second grade every day, and I never stop talking. <laughs> so my voice is not in great shape. And I also want to say, Hannah, how proud I am of you, and I just wish you the very best. And I love you. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> thank you so very much. That really means the world to me. You're and welcome. thank you again for letting me not even tell your story, but just help tell your story and yes. hopefully get it yes. out to more people. So thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know what, hopefully somebody will listen to this and get in touch with me and, um, and then I can be a blessing to someone else. So yeah. thank you, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to tell your story on Truly Texan, head over to the Austin American Statesman website and fill out our submission form. This podcast is hosted and edited by me, Hannah Ortega. You can find me on Instagram at Hannah Ortega ATX.